in the February 15, 2020 edition, a couple of weeks ago, of World Magazine, uh, there was an article on a prisoner that's serving a life sentence for his evil actions as a serial killer back in the mid to late 1970s. His name is David Berkowitz. He was known as the son of Sam. I remember well as a young boy uh, being terrified and, and the whole nation was terrified and, and in particular this New York City was terrified uh, as he was drawing national attention over these attacks uh, on women uh, during that time. He claimed that he was driven by demons and he, in 1975 he attempted to murder a woman but she survived. He then murdered a woman in 1976 and over the next year he, he claimed five more victims. And during his uh, killing spree he would send letters uh, to various newspapers in New York City and he would sign them Son of Sam. And it was a reference to a demon that he believed lived in his neighbor's Labrador, Labrador Retriever. And the neighbor's name was Sam, Sam Carr. Well, on August the 10th, 1977, this man, Berkowitz, was arrested and has spent the rest of his life in maximum security prison. He's now 66 years old. But here's the question. Why a, an article on a serial killer in a Christian magazine? Well, because he's been converted to Jesus Christ. Indeed, his favorite Bible story is that of the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs. Remember, he was chained and he would scream out. He was unclothed. He was out of his mind. And then Jesus saved him. And the next thing you know, he's clothed. He's in his right mind. That's the language that was used. Here's what Berkowitz said in his own words. He says, Here was the Lord coming into this extreme situation and saving this man's life and delivering him from the demons that had him in such a grip. He said, I love that story. Why? He said, because it reminds him of himself. He said he remembers even as a child that he craved the darkness. Where most children are scared of the darkness, that's what he craved. He would hide in closets because he loved the darkness. But now, because of the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, he loves the light, and he lives in the light. Now, if you're like me, as I'm reading that article, there's something about it that rubs me wrong. Um, the conversion of someone who wreaked such havoc on individuals and families, the kind of actions that those families will never, ever be the same. It rubs me a bit wrong, especially when you consider that most unbelievers never, ever are as evil in their actions as David Berkowitz was. Of course, that rubbing me wrong betrays a misunderstanding of the nature of grace. Grace does not come to a person because he or she is more qualified for grace than another person. And that's why 
there's often a natural kind of scandal about saving grace. And, and our text is, is no exception. We're going to see two things today in our text that are really a scandal to the natural mind. The first thing we're going to see in the first section here in Jeremiah 12 is the remarkable judgment that God promises to pour out on Judah. Now, it's not that we don't see that they deserved it. We do believe that they deserved what they were getting. But the problem that we struggle with, and we see it with Habakkuk, is that God was using an even more wicked nation to bring about the judgment. And that's what rubs us wrong. It's scandalous to us. But the second thing we're going to see, God also promises to pour out his mercy on those very nations that are more wicked than Judah and are a thorn in Judah's side. Of course, these nations were unwitting agents of the Lord. When they were coming against Judah, they weren't thinking, we are the instruments in the hands of a holy God. God was using their evil and their wickedness to bring about his purposes. Um, and, and so God takes these people who are these nations that are evil and wicked, and he uses their wickedness in a way to bring about his covenant curses on Judah. Now, we saw last week that Jeremiah, not last week, but the last time we were in Jeremiah 7 or, or, or um, 12, that Jeremiah said amen to the covenant curses that the Lord would pour out on Judah. Just for review, it's actually in chapter 11. Notice in Jeremiah 11, uh, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. And then I answered, Jeremiah answered in verse 5, Amen. Or in the ESV it says, so be it. But it's more literal, Amen. And what he's doing, he's picking up the covenant curses and the Amen to those curses in Deuteronomy 27. He's the only one though. He's the only one affirming that Judah deserves God's covenant curses because of their sin. In other words, he's in agreement with God, but this is going to get him in hot water. And we saw by the time we get to the end of this passage last time that even Jeremiah's family is turned on him at this point. Jeremiah's prophesying judgment and even his flesh and bones, the people of his own hometown have turned on him because he's preaching judgment on them. And that is actually the link between Chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, and verse 7, where we pick up. Because if you'll notice, in verse 6, we saw last time, For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. And then notice in verse 7, I have forsaken my house. This is the Lord speaking. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of of her enemies. So imagine this in human terms. God has given, notice the language that's used here. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. Who's he referring to there? He's referring to the people. He's referring to Judah. He's referring to the people of God. Um, my soul, he calls them. And then if you'll notice in verse 10, my pleasant portion. 
He has given them odor. Imagine the cost, the pain of that. And I think the emotion of that is seen in the fact that that word my is seen over and over again. All of these were bound together as belonging to God. Again, my house, my heritage, my soul. These belong to God. And now because of their covenant breaking, God is going to give them over to judgment. And I think the imagery in verses 8 and 9 are even more haunting. He says, my heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Now, God depicts himself here in verse 8 as a lion's prey. I don't know if you've ever used to watch the, the Wild Kingdom. Uh, you had uh, Marlon Perkins, who was always at the camp roasting wieners. And Jim was out there being chased by the lions. And I wonder what kind of deal. You know, you, you assume that Marlon had the better paying gig, but Jim was the one out there always in danger. And I think about that here in this particular case. You, you see those prey when those lions are, are lurking, you know, out in the, in, in the jungles. But here, shockingly, the, who is the prey? The prey is God. I mean, this is remarkable language. The lion is Judah, who have become so hostile to God that for God it feels like being mauled by a lion. And I think one of the reasons this is important, now we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, but our God is the same God. And, and this, should, this should give us a picture of what our sin, you know, how our sin is, our sin is viewed in the eyes of our God. In, in this particular case, it's like he is a prey. He, it feels like he's being mauled like a lion. And, and the shocking words, therefore I hate her, are bone chilling. As one writer uh, states it, the verse always sends chills up my spine. What would it mean if God hated us? To turn Paul's statement in Romans 8 upside down, if God is against us, who can be for us? Now, this does not mean we have to think in terms of metaphorical language that God stopped loving Judah. All right? These prophets speak in metaphorical language. It implies that God will necessarily have to treat Judah as his enemy. That's what it means given the covenant stipulations with them. They have broken covenant. They have persisted in the breaking of the covenant. Of course, we recognize this morning that how, how the king goes is how the nation goes. And so the nation is depicted as covenant breaking because the king is the covenant breaker. And, and so as the one goes, so goes the many. And, and so his sin, his covenant breaking um, apostasy is imputed to the rest of the nation. Even though there were godly people in that day, such as Jeremiah and his contemporary Habakkuk. Um, 
And so by giving them over, it was as if his love had changed to hate. But it's the same kind of language that Jesus used. If you're going to follow me, you must hate your father and mother. He's not saying literally that you, that you hate your father and mother. It's metaphorical language to, to depict a reality. That your love for Jesus should be so great that it makes your commitments to your parents pale in comparison. All right, And so that's, I think, what is being said here. And it echoes Deuteronomy 7. Listen to this warning in Deuteronomy 7, which is from the law. Verses 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So this is reminiscent of that. Of course, we know, this is what's interesting, Judah was supposed to be a lion. Do you remember back in Jacob's prophecy over Judah in Genesis 49? He calls Judah a, a lion's cub who stoops down. He crouches as a lion. But in that particular prophecy, instead of doing the bidding of her owner, she has turned on her owner. This lion has turned on her master. In other words, if a lion... Let me give you some counsel. If you ever go on a safari, if a lion attacks you, you have no choice but to treat it as an enemy. All right? Did y'all write that down? Am I moving too fast? All right. Now, in verse 9, the imagery reverses as Israel is depicted as the ones who will become a prey to their enemies. So in verse 8, they're the lion who's attacking their prey. That's what sin is. It's an attack on our God. And now God is going to reverse, you know, the situation towards Judah. Notice verse 9. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beast. Bring them to devour. The hyena, the birds, and the wild beast represent Babylon. It represents the other enemy nations, but primarily Babylon, the enemy who will stalk Judah. And then verses 10 to 13 describes the suffering and the misery that will be brought about by these enemy kings. Verse 10, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Now, generally, when you read about shepherds in the scriptures, it's a good thing. Uh, normally, it's Israel's leaders who are considered the shepherds of God's people. But here it's the enemy nations and the kings of those nations that are depicted as shepherds. Um, and when the foreign invaders, when they would invade a, a country, they typically destroyed the fruit of the land. That's what you see here. And that's what Jeremiah's prophesying. Uh, this is paradise lost, essentially. The fruit of the land is being destroyed. Anytime you read about fruit, 
in the scriptures, it's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden or it's pointing forward to a new Eden, a new creation. And so when fruit is destroyed, that's anti-creation, all right? Uh, this is paradise lost. Israel, the, the, the promised land, was a land flowing with milk and honey. It's depicting in Edenic terms. It's like the Garden of Eden for the corporate Adam. But just like the first Adam who broke covenant with God, the macro Adam has broke covenant with God. And what's going to happen? He's going to cast them out of the garden just as he cast the first Adam out of the garden. Notice in verse 10 or verse 11, they have made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns to me, the land that is, the whole land. Notice how often he uses that word desolation or desolate. I think he used it in verse 10, a desolate wilderness. And now in verse 11, they've made it a desolation, desolate. The whole land is made desolate. But no man lays it to heart. This is anti-creation. It's anti-Eden. And then notice verse 12. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. Now, it's hard to know because some of Jeremiah's writings, though they were written by Jeremiah, they're not, it's not chronological. The book is not chronological. And so it's hard to know if some of these um, things that he is discussing are happening at the same time or whether it's prophecy. It doesn't matter because the prophet is always correct in his prophecy. So it really doesn't matter if this is happening or if it's going to happen. And so these nations would be used by God as instruments of judgment. It was the sword of the Lord that would bring calamity. All right. Now notice in verse 13. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. Now that's the curse of the covenant. But I'm telling you that this applies to us in a very real way. Though we're not under the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant. When we as believers seek to live in such a way where we deny the lordship of God, God has committed himself to see that we will not prosper. He has committed himself to see that his people will not flourish. He loves us too much to allow us to succeed in our sin. Unbelievers can. They're not under the discipline of God. Like I tell my kids, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spank my next-door neighbor's kids. Uh, we were talking about today, just a, a couple of years ago, we, two of our neighbor's kids came in our yard, and by the time they were done, you know that word desolation? <laughs> oh, man, they stripped the, the bark off one of our trees. They painted our, we have some rocks in our little plant area, and they painted them blue. Oh, my goodness. Um, they, got a, they, got a little dis, they got a little rebuke from me. But I, but I told my kids, the reason I didn't spank them, they're not mine. They're not mine. They're not under my discipline. They're not sons. I said, if you had done that, it would have been a bad day. And it wouldn't be because I lost my temper. It would be because I love my kids too much to allow them to remain in that rebellion. All right? And so God, 
He, he loves us too much to allow us to flourish in sin. All right? And in the same way, uh, even as God is bringing judgment on his people, we recognize with the, the, the eschatological promises laid out by the prophets that he's not done. That he loves his people, but he's wanting to root Canaan out of them. He's wanting to, they were acting like Canaanites, and he was wanting to root Canaan out of these people. And so notice, they would plant grains, but they would reap thorns. What did Hosea say? Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. I believe that's Hosea 8, verse 7. And, and when the people saw it, um, they would experience shame, knowing that their disobedience caused the disaster. Of course, we recognize that, again, what Jeremiah is referring to is the complete devastation of, of Jerusalem and the land by the Babylonians as they would come in and ultimately would destroy the temple and take the king into exile. You know, modern archaeology, and we don't need modern archaeology to um, validate the scriptures. Uh, scriptures uh, stand on their own, all right? But modern archaeology supports all of these prophecies because all the towns of Judah that have been excavated were destroyed around 600 BC. Even secular archaeologists recognize that. So this is clearly, um, it's supported here. And, and so the Lord here gives over his beloved and, and his beloved loses her paradise just like Adam had lost the paradise. And I want you to consider for a moment who was the original audience of the book of Jeremiah? I think that's a very important interpretive principle. When we're, when we're reading the scripture, we need to ask ourselves, who was the original audience? Because you want to ask the, yourselves the question, who was the original audience and why was it written for the original audience? Well, the original audience would have been those believing Jews who are in, in exile. And... and you can imagine how they would have felt living in Babylon and reading these words. They have been deported from their home. They have lost everything. They are truly refugees by, by no choice of their own. Um, the events of verses 10 to 13 are 2,700 years removed from us these events were raw and they were fresh for the original audience. The land had been invaded. The temple had been destroyed. And yes, they were covenant breakers. There was no denying that. But here's one of the issues that arises. You see in Habakkuk, and you also see it in Jeremiah. We're going to see it later in Jeremiah. Habakkuk's conundrum is that, yes, we have broken covenant but you've using, you have used an even more wicked and vile people to judge us. And Habakkuk was struggling with that, with the theodicy of that. How can a good and just God uh, allow that to happen? Yes, we deserve discipline. But why would you use someone who is even more wicked than us to bring about that discipline? And Jeremiah himself is going to long for God to deal with these enemies with vengeance. We'll see that. Uh, we'll see, we've already seen it in parts of it. Chapter 11, we, we're going to see it later in Jeremiah. And why do I say that? Well, 
With that in mind, verses 14 to 17, as we close out this chapter, will be very scandalous. Remember, grace is scandalous. We tend to think that grace should come to those who, yes, are sinful, but they're not as sinful as Adolf Hitler or David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Verses 14 to 17 are very scandalous. Verses 14 to 17 is a curveball in the text. And here we're going to see an amazing promise of compassion and restoration. Not on Israel. That's coming, of course, but on the enemy nations. Notice me in verse 14. It's just out of nowhere. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently... Who is that? Who's they? The enemy nations. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people. What are the ways of my people? Obedience in response to God's mercy and grace and obedience through the sacrificial system. Knowing the wages of sin is death and so the substitute animal dies in my place. All right? If they learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. They did that to my people. Then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Isn't that beautiful? That's remarkable grace and mercy. But it's also a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the blessings. We're going to see next week on Sunday morning... 1 Samuel 7, 19, that the Davidic covenant is for the nations as well. Of course, at this point, the Davidic covenant is their gospel. It is through the king, the Davidic king, that the blessings will come. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. And so though God had promised judgment on Judah... Their, their wicked enemies, their nation, the, the neighbors around them would not avoid punishment. But this text is so unique in that it combines a threat of punishment with a promise of saving mercy and compassion for the same nations. And that is why this text is so important. You know, it's easy to pass over these kind of texts in our quiet time. And we want to read through texts like this just to check it off our reading list when we're reading through the Bible. But texts like this are very important. We will just hesitate and meditate on, on this passage. Israel has to learn that their identity as God's covenant people granted them no Im immunity from the righteous judgment of God. 
They had not learned that. They were resting in the temple. They were resting in the law. They were resting in, all, in circumcision. They were resting in all of these, these covenant markings. And that was their security. Just like many people in Baptist world. And it's wonderful to have grown up Baptist so that y'all don't think I'm picking on Baptist. Uh, I'm glad I, I, I grew up a Southern Baptist. And so when I pick on Southern Baptists, I'm an insider picking on them. I grew up in a world that if you walked an aisle, if you prayed the sinner's prayer, if you got dunked in the back of the church, we had a, a little pool outside. It could get cold too. Um, you were really baptized if that happened. And that was your security. That, that was your mark of assurance. Um, you know, and, and that's how they were. We're the people of the temple. We're the people of the law. We're the people of, of circumcision. Never mind the fact there's no evidence of holiness in our lives presently. There's no commitment to the Lord and his righteousness. There's no, there's no repentance, but we're the people of the temple and they had to learn. God was teaching them that just because they were the people God's covenant people, they had no immunity from righteous judgment. If they acted like the pagan nations, then they, learned, they would have to learn that God would treat them as such. On the other hand, if they wanted the Lord to be compassionate and merciful, they had to recognize that this mercy would not and could not be confined to them alone remember that was Jonah's problem Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God would be merciful to them we see that in Jonah chapter 4 and so they had to come to realize that if they wanted mercy they had that, that the Lord himself would also pour out his mercy on others and this hope to the nations given by Jeremiah should not surprise us because it was consistent with his calling. Do you remember all the way back? Let's look. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look at that real quickly. I want you to see it. You can just flip over there. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet. Notice, to the nations. We see it in verse 10 as well. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. He was a prophet to the nations. And that prophet would preach judgment, but he would also preach mercy and grace to these same nations. Indeed, Jeremiah in this text blurs the distinction between insiders and outsiders. The insiders being the Jew, Jewish people, the outsiders being the Gentile nations. God's mercy extends beyond the national borders of Judah to all the peoples of the earth. That's why we're here tonight. It's God's mercy to people like us and to people like David Berkowitz, formerly known as the son of Sam. Let me close with this amazing prophecy. In Isaiah 9, 19, 
Well, I say close with it, but then I want to add a couple of verses to this. In one of the most remarkable passages in Isaiah, it's a prophecy about the salvation of Israel's enemies. In, Israel, in Isaiah 19, it says, In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. What day? It's the day of the Lord, the day of salvation, the day the kingdom comes. Verse 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Verse 21, and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day. Verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Two enemy nations, all right? And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. That's weird to even say it. I mean, we spent all that time in Exodus. And, and having spent all that time in Exodus, it's, it's weird to come, for that to come out of my mouth. Egypt, my people. Because what did we hear constantly in Egypt, in Exodus? Let my people go from Egypt. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, how will this come about? I want you to turn over, and this is the last place we'll have you turn, Psalm 72. Again, don't forget the promise to David. How is this going to come about that God is going to move in such a way that the Egyptians will be able to say, my people, that the Assyrians will be able to say, we are the work of his hands, that there will be this highway between Assyria and Egypt. Don't forget the blessing, the promise made to David. It will come through his offspring. And David, his son Solomon, is writing Psalm 72. Psalm 72 was written by Solomon, and he's speaking about a day to come. And notice, he's praying. Solomon knows at this point that he's not the ultimate fulfillment. So he's praying to God, and he's basing it on the promises made to David. Isn't that amazing how these texts just kind of overlap with each other? The reason they overlap, we shouldn't be surprised. There's one ultimate author, one ultimate plan. And he says in verse 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea. Who's Solomon praying about? The Davidic king. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is his prayer. That this Davidic king would have a dominion that would encompass every nook and cranny of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That's Genesis 3.15 language. May the kings of Tarshish, one of their enemies, and of the coastlands render him tribute. In that day, the kings of Tarshish, the enemies of God, will render tribute to the Davidic king. It's worship. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. All these are enemies. May all kings fall down before him, all nations, all nations serve him. 
Solomon realizes that this isn't me. Uh, Solomon knew his problems. He knew his limitations. And then notice in verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Isn't that beautiful? So how will this Davidic king accomplish this kind of universal salvation? Not universal in the sense that everyone will be saved, but universal in the sense that every tribe and tongue, all the ends of the earth will, will, will know him. Well, let's go back to Jeremiah. It's an interesting verse back in verse 7 where the Lord says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul. That's beautiful. The beloved of my soul. Who is the beloved of my soul? It's Judah. And in particular, I would think the king, the king of Judah. Because as the king goes, goes to the people. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. This is reminiscent, reminiscent of a text in Matthew 27 too. Listen to these words. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So, Israel was delivered over into the enemy, hand, the enemy's hands. And in Matthew 27, the text tells us there's one who's coming to bring salvation. And the way he will bring salvation is he will be delivered over in the place of God's people. And when he is delivered over, he will receive the judgment that we deserve. He will satisfy the wrath of God on our sin. Our sin will be imputed to him. And then God will deliver him from the grave. He will raise him up. And in so doing, reverses the curse on people like David Berkowitz. And on people like us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're a saving God. And we want to confess right now, there's no serial killers in this room. But there's no one in here that deserves your mercy any more than David Berkowitz. It is your grace, your mercy alone that we sit here saved tonight. And we pray, Lord, that mercy would melt us. And that melted heart would inform our lives and all of our relationships. And we thank you for that mercy that we have in the greater David. And we ask your grace, your blessings on our week as we go into this week that we may be found faithful stewards of that mercy. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. You're